Morning, how are we doing at 11 o'clock? Hey, it's good to have you with us this morning. If you happen to be joining us for the very first time, hey, welcome to Rocky Peak. We're glad that you're spending this time with us. Uh, my name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here. And Adon and... <laughs> it's not what this is about. <laughs> My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here, and it actually dawned on me yesterday, I'm exactly four weeks away from uh, my third child being here, and, and, and that should be exciting, and it will be, but it dawned on me more in the sense of why have I not been preparing in any way? Oh, man. Anyways... <laughs> Uh, hey, we're really, really glad you're here. We're going to jump into a time of teaching this morning. you got a program on your way in. If you would open that up, there is a message note sheet. That's a great tool that's going to help you follow along uh, with this message. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to get started. Father, as we've been going through this series, the reality of it is that you are our ultimate priority. Father, as we've been going through it, our lives, and we gave our lives to you in a joyful act of submission. You created us into something brand new. You lifted us up out of our bondage and our destruction. And now you teach us how to live radically different, but to teach us to live the way we were always intended to be. And so, Father, as we open up your word this morning, as we look at how do we continue to live by your great design, I pray that I, as the communicator, become much, much less, and that you, as our ultimate Jesus, become so much more. We give up, we will commit this time to you in your son's name. Everybody said, amen. Hey, if you're brand new again, or just haven't been with us in a long while, let me uh, take a few minutes to give you a recap into this series we've been in. Since about the mid-January, we've been in a series called Priorities, the Path to Life. Now, this series has been built on one of the most common metaphors used in the Bible, that is that life is a journey. Now, as the Bible uses this metaphor, it describes life as a journey with many possible roads we could take. Now, the Bible describes certain roads as the roads to life, meaning these are the roads that lead us to Jesus, that lead us to his salvation, his restoration, his grace, um, restore, uh, restored relationships, and sanctification, and so on. But the Bible says there's also other roads we could choose to take, which are the roads that lead to death. These are the roads that lead away from Jesus and lead to pain, heartache, broken relationships, and ultimately destruction. And so the core of this series has been about us as Christ followers learning to choose our path wisely. Now, in the first three weeks of this series, Pastor Michael set the foundation, which is that our ultimate priority is Jesus and in those first couple of weeks, we learned that how to pursue him vehemently, how to listen to his leading, how to acknowledge that we aren't to live by default, but by design, by his glorious design. And then last week, we kicked off the second half of the series that if we are going to be people that live by God's design, what does that look like? And we're teaching, uh, we're teaching four specific areas in which are essential to live by God's design, but are often neglected by Christ followers. And this week, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be jumping into the realm of relationships, of connecting relationally in all areas. Because connecting relationally plays a significant part in living our design well. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to take us back to an event in Jesus' life that we started this series with. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled The Priority of Connections. 
And if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be going to the Gospel of Mark in the second half of the Bible, the New Testament. We're going to be going to Mark chapter 12, and we're going to be starting at verse 28. Now, as you're turning to Mark 12, 28, let me set up a little bit of context for what's happening. Jesus, in his ministry, often clashed with the religious establishment of the time. They viewed Jesus as a threat to their power and their status. And so they were always looking for ways, in, for lack of a better term, to, to take Jesus down. And so what's happening beforehand is Jesus has been engaging uh, questions by some of these religious leaders. A Pharisee and a Sadducee came to Jesus to ask questions, not because they actually cared about the answer, but because they were hoping that Jesus would say something to incriminate himself. That he would say something that, uh, that would cause him to lose support amongst his followers or amongst fans, or say something that would be so inflammatory he would get arrested. Now, I don't need a show of hands. But think about those times in your life when you thought you were smarter than Jesus. How well did that work out? And it worked out just as about the same for these religious leaders that Jesus shut them down, dropped the mic, and he made them look foolish. And now where we're starting in verse 28 is there's a third religious leader that comes to ask Jesus a question. But what's unique is, unlike the first two, he's not coming in an from an antagonistic point of view. He has an actual, genuine question. And what I like about it is it shows us God's heart that no matter who we are, no matter where we've been, no matter what our level of belief is, when we approach God with, genu with a genuine inquiry, he responds really well to that. So verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, let me stop mid-sentence there. This is a good reminder that there may not have been a lot of them, but there were some good Pharisees out there. Because the fact that a Pharisee was giving Jesus encouragement is a big, big deal. So noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all of the commandments, which is the most important? This was actually a common question that was debated amongst the religious leaders and establishment at the time. See, in Jewish belief, you had been raised with the Old Testament. There are 613 laws of Moses in the Old Testament, the most famous of which are what we call the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. So often, religious leaders were asking a really good question. Out of all of these laws, is there one or two, or is there a concept in these laws that take priority over all others? Out of all of these laws, is there something that we should base our lives around, prioritize? And so now he's asking Jesus, and look at Jesus' response. Verse 29, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So let me stop right there. What Jesus does is he takes them back to what we now call the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And what Jesus quotes, and Michael talked about this a few weeks ago, is the Jewish Shema. Meaning, if you were a devout Jew, you recited this, uh, this section of scriptures at least three times a day. In fact, on the Sabbath, when you went to go worship at the temple, worship would not begin until the congregation recited the Shema. And the intent of the Shema was to remind us of our priority in life. 
that no matter where we go, no matter what we do, God is God and heart, soul, mind, strength is the totality of a person. My main priority in life is to pursue and love God with everything I am. Now, what gets really fascinating is the leader asked for one. And Jesus intentionally is now going to give him a second one. Verse 31, the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So what does Jesus do now is he quotes Leviticus chapter 19. And again, to a religious leader like this Pharisee, these were familiar verses to him. He's probably heard them in his studies and education growing up. But what he's never heard them before is used together like that. And what Jesus is doing is often, because of the religious establishment, the heart of God was buried under man-made rules and legalism. God is going back to what was always his heart in his holy scriptures. And he's showing them that if you genuinely love God, a natural result of that is going to be that you now have a genuine love for his creation, meaning other people. If God is a priority, then the result of that is we will now start prioritizing connecting relationally in our lives. And he says that no greater commandment, there are no greater commandments than these. And he's not saying that to ignore everything else up to that point, but these commandments sum up the intent and the heart of the law. In fact, if you look at the, the Bible in its entirety, the Bible is a book about reconnecting relationally, and the Bible has always been about restoring relationships to God and one another. See, I mentioned the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, and if you look at the Ten Commandments, they're not these soulless rules to live by, but the reality is there are ways to live in restored relationship with God and to live in restored relationship with one another in all of our relationships. So Jesus is saying that genuine relationship is our priority, genuine relationship with God, but he's also making the important distinction, you cannot love God and hate people. And why does he make that distinction? Because we are not better than God. Because he loves people. And so who am I to not love what God loves? See, his message has always been of that unconditional love that takes action. The word he uses is a variation of the Greek word agape, which is love unconditionally, commit to the very end, act on it. So the point in this, whole, in this encounter with Jesus is that he's changing the way we all think about all types of relational connections. He's changing the way we think about connecting with him, and we've hit that at many points in the series. But he's now also changing the way we view connecting with other people. And so what I want to do, um, what I want to do as we move on from our first of two core passages this morning, is I want to look at the core truths that come out of this passage. And I've identified two that help us in a big picture way begin to see connecting relationally with others in a whole new light. So there in your note sheet, your first fill-in is this. Connecting relationally is embracing God's passion for others. Connecting relationally is embracing God's passion for others. 
And if you're following along in your note sheet, if you, have, if, you're, if you have a writing implement, would you put a box or stars or fire or a triangle around the word passion? Because that word beautifully describes God, and it also takes away misconceptions that God is a boring, unpassionate God. And so here's what I mean by this, by, by this truth. Sometimes we live in a misconception that when I give my life to Jesus, I'm pretty much just me, the same person I always have been. The only difference is now I have a fast pass to heaven. And the reality is the Bible teaches something that's the complete opposite, that when we give our lives to Jesus in a beautiful act of repentance, what doesn't happen is God doesn't take all of these broken and dirty pieces of myself and kind of duct tape them back together. What he does is he creates a new creation that is radically different, that is now free from the bondage of sin and is now free to live as we were intended to as reflections of him by becoming more like him in every aspect of our life. And that process in a theological term is called sanctification. That is the purpose of our lives as Christ followers is to grow in sanctification, meaning to grow and become more like Jesus in all aspects and in our purposes when it comes to connecting relationally. Think about it. As, grow, as we Christ followers, we are growing and learning to prioritize what God, what God has, what are God's own priorities. We are learning to be passionate for what God is passionate about. I think about several uh, years ago, the worship band Hillsong United had a song Hosanna that was popular, and there was a line in it I love that said, "God, break my heart for what breaks yours." It's another way of saying, make me passionate for what, for what you are passionate about. And that's sanctification. In fact, one of my favorite devotionals, my utmost for his highest, I like how it puts it in your note sheets. Sanctification means intense concentration on God's point of view. Sanctification means being made one with Jesus so that the disposition that ruled him will rule us. And so with that being said, how does Jesus view relational connection? He does not view it as something that'd be nice if you got to it. He does not view it as even something that's just good. He views it as essential for life. See, sometimes when we think of those essentials for life, we often think about the things we have to do, but we treat them like a chore. I have to work. I have to be a parent or a spouse after a long day at work. I have to do this. Even spiritually, I have to read my Bible. I have to go to church. I have to do all this. And to be frank, whenever we view an essential as a chore, even though we go through the motions, it doesn't have any meaning because we have no passion behind it. Let me illustrate it like this. Despite how I look to some of you, it's been a long time since I was in college. And when I first started in college... Um, I was doing like my, 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 I was a junior college doing like my 101 stuff and I had a poli-sci class I had to take and twice a week, this prof, the last place he wanted to be was there and he made it very, very obvious because this is how every class would start. We would go in, we'd sit down and he'd begin asking us questions. Hey, who did something cool this weekend? And we watch a good movie and we watch TV, music, 
Anything going on with your pets? He would keep asking all of these questions, and we didn't respond that much because we were half asleep. And finally, when he realized he's not going to get anything out of us, this was his posture. (sighs) All right, let's get started. And you know what was even more fascinating? Was once he started teaching, he actually wasn't a bad teacher. But there was no passion. There was no motivation. You could tell, I would rather want to do anything but this. And so the reality is when we see these, quote, Christ follower essentials, they're not meant to be approached as chores, but this is what God is passionate about, and he is passionate about us connecting relationally. And so now that we view that, that leads us to our second point then. So if we are passionate about connecting relationally in all kinds of relationships, well, how do we do that well? And that's a harder question than it may seem at first, right? Because if you lined up 100 people and asked them, hey, what's the best way to do friendships well, or marriages well, or co-worker relationships well, you're probably going to get 100 different answers. We have no shortage of books or talk shows to try to help us connect well relationally. But the more important question for us as Christ followers is, how does God define How does God define a relationship that is going well? And so your second fill-in is this. Connecting relationally flows out of our connection with Jesus. Connecting relationally flows out of our connection with Jesus. Michael has said this in previous series as before that, Even though we are in Christ, as long as we're on this side of heaven, we always have this tug to the dark side, this tug towards sin. And we see that exemplified very, very well when it comes to relationships that I have to be honest about myself here, and I'm pretty sure many of you can relate. Naturally, when it comes to relationships, I'm bad at them. When it comes to just what I want to do, I'm naturally bad at relationships because I approach it with an it's all about me attitude. This is what I want. What can I get out of this? And so if you were to ask me, just as a normal, flawed human being, how do you do relationship well? I would probably answer in ways that make sense to me, but I don't know what I'm doing. Let me illustrate it this way. I enjoy sports. I follow certain sports. But one sport I have never followed actually is basketball. And it's not because I have anything against basketball. I respect the athleticism. I respect uh, the effort that goes into it. I just, it was just something I was never really exposed to. So I don't know a whole lot about basketball beyond get the ball in the hoop. So let's say my son wants to play basketball. I am the last person that should coach that team. Because I'm completely out of my element. Like, what, what would I say if I'm trying to coach people in basketball? J- jump higher. Um, run faster. Shoot. Now, why am I the last person that should do it? Because I don't know what I'm doing. What they would need is somebody who does. When it comes to relationships because of sin, we don't know what we're doing. But thankfully, we have a Jesus who does. 
And so if I want to be good at connecting relationally, then that begins with my most important relationship. That begins with learning how to connect with God because this is the key word if you want to jot it down. When I connect with God, the overflow of that impacts all of my other connections. My friendships, my family, my work life, my enemies, my neighbors, whoever it may be, it's all impacted by my relationship with God. There in your note sheet, the late, great Dallas Willard, one of my favorite authors of all time, puts it this way. This life is shown in both its horizontal, the human, and its vertical, the divine dimensions. To understand it totally revolutionizes how we deal with our families, our fellow Christians, and our fellow citizens on earth, both in the kingdom and out. There are not relationships that omit the presence and action of Jesus. We never go one-on-one. All relationships are mediated through him. I never think simply of what I am going to do with you, to you, or for you. I think of what we, Jesus and I, are going to do with you, to you, and for you. Isn't that great? And this is the importance of this truth. We cannot connect well with others if we are not connecting well with Jesus. We cannot connect well with others if we are not connecting well with Jesus. And why is that the case? Because it's how Jesus defines if a relationship is going well, are we being reflections of Jesus in those relationships? If I'm connecting with Jesus regularly, he's continually transforming me. And so therefore, when I approach the easy relationships, the good relationships, the fun ones, when I approach the difficult ones, what I'm going to be approaching it as is as a Christ follower who's growing more and more to be like Jesus. Because then what happens is the focus is off of me. What am I going to get? How are you useful to me? And the focus becomes, how can I glorify God through this? That is our standard for if a relationship was well. We're not perfect, and we will stumble and we will fall. But it's this pursuit that defines if we're doing relationship well. It's a radical reorientation. But the other thing that Jesus does that helps us redefine, that helps us define, are we doing relationship well, is are we focusing our energy on the most important relationships? Because sometimes when we talk about relationships, We get really tense and anxious. How am I going to fit this on my schedule? How am I going to cram this all in? And frankly, if that's our view of any aspect in life, we are doing it wrong. Because it is never about how am I going to cram God's priority into my existing schedule. It is always about the fact that new game, new life, your priorities, how do we now live? And that's exemplified through relationships. And what the Bible has done is the Bible has listed out a couple of key relationships that are essential for us to focus on if we want to live this designed life. Ultimately, the first and foremost is the relationship with God. But I also put the other human connections down in your note sheet. And let's go through these real, let's go through these briefly. The first one is family. The Bible emphasizes the priority on family. Now, if you look at Scripture, 
it lays a high, a high importance on family because it is the key metaphor. Family is the key metaphor that God uses to describe his relationship with us and his relationship with the church. At its best, the intentional design of family means a group of people who do literally do life together that are bound together in a stronger way than any other connection. Now, we, all are, we are all part of families, and we know that families are not a fairy tale. They are not perfect, and they bring a lot of messiness, pain, and frustration. But that's also part of this intentional design that, see, family gets to see the real us. Family, see, we can pull it together and put on the mask and look real good and smile for an hour and a half. But family sees what you're like at the end of a long day at work. Family sees what you're like when you wake up first thing in the morning. Family sees you at your rawest self. And that's part of this design that family learns to be committed, learns to love, learns to connect no matter what in the good and the bad, because family is a reflection of that agape love that God has for us, that in our best and in our worst, Jesus is not going anywhere. And family is meant to be a reflection of that. Now, as I say that, there's some of us in this room that the family we grew up in, the family we may currently have, is a very positive and awesome thing. It doesn't mean it's not frustrating at times, but it's been a good experience. There's many of us in this room that family, the idea of our immediate family is one of the most painful thoughts ever, maybe due to abuse, violence, abandonment, whatever that may be. And often people coming from backgrounds such as that wonder, well, how can I prioritize that? Like it's, it's been so wrecked in my life. And my encouragement to you is you are a new creation in Jesus. You are not bound by your past. But now the God that lives in you is giving you what you need to begin a brand new generation. As long as we prioritize it. The second relational connection that's prioritized is believers. The extended family. The family of God. Because think about what happens in the family of God. We are a beautifully diverse mess. We have different stories, different backgrounds, different upbringings, and we are all united by the same Jesus. And only a supernatural love could unite this hodgepodge together. But what do we do when we get together with the family of believers? We sit under God's life-changing word. We worship and we pray together. It's also in this community where we develop genuine friendships. We develop mentorships. We develop opportunities to be disciple. We learn to serve our church, but also to serve one another. So the Lord prioritizes that community because we are stronger together than we ever will be apart. This is an argument I make sometimes because often I hear in our culture from religious sides, I mean, I love God. I believe in God, but I, I don't feel the need to go to church. And again, what's happening is we are not prioritizing one of the connections that God does. One of the ways that we at Rocky Peak, we, uh, one of the ways that we live this value out of connecting with believers is our weekend services. But another way we do it is our life groups. See, really at Rocky Peak, life groups are the heart of our church. 
And what happens in a life group is we take this big, big room, we shrink it down to a, a smaller group of adults, and we learn how to do life together. And all of those things we mentioned, the sitting under teaching, friendship, mentorship, discipleship, worship, accountability happens in a life group. And when we prioritize it, amazing things happen. We got an email a couple of months ago, or maybe about a month ago or so, from a gentleman at our church who was telling us that his family had gone through a really rough time. His son was born prematurely, so he had to be in the NICU. And as he was in the NICU, the laundry list of things that were going wrong were just piling up. And this happened about a week or two before Christmas. He had three other kids he needed to care for. His wife had undergone a cesarean, so she was recovering, and he didn't know what to do. And so he reached out to his life group at Rocky Peak, and this is the story that he shared. A life group member started a Facebook page and has been posting updates because updating everybody was impossible via text. Members of my Members of my life group have been bringing food to my house for the kids and myself as I've been going back and forth to the hospital. I stopped by a life group member's home after church on Saturday to decompress and have some dinner with my son. Two members of my life group came to my house and spent five hours organizing my garage and converting one of our rooms so that we can all, live, we can all have a live-in caretaker. Two life group members wrapped all of our Christmas gifts. Two life group members are cooking us Christmas dinner so we can spend time at the hospital. Another Rocky Peak member came to our home to help care for the kids so I could have individual time with each of them since they haven't seen their mother in a week and were in need. Not to mention the endless support, the endless support via calls and text messages. I've never needed the support of a community before. I wasn't sure how it worked or what it even meant until now. This has all been so humbling. This experience has increased my faith in the Lord as his provision, love, timing, and grace have all been shown true. I don't know how much longer my son will be in the NICU, but I'm confident through the storm. God bless this church. And what do you see in that? You see regular, everyday people just like you and me who prioritize the family of believers and acted on it. Now, the third connection that the Bible prioritizes is our one lives. Now, if you're newer to Rocky Peak, this is a term we've been using for the last several years. What we mean by one life is that it's somebody that you have in your life already, somebody that you like, that you love, that you enjoy, that you engage in relationship with, but it's somebody that has yet to know Jesus. And the key word, yet. And the way the Bible uses, excuse me, and these one lives can take a range of many different relationships. They could be family members, maybe a parent, maybe a child, maybe a cousin or a sibling. They can be your neighbors. They can be the people on your sports teams, your extracurriculars. They can be uh, your coworkers. They can be your baristas. And on that note, people, please be good to your baristas because they're the salt of the earth. But the Bible, using this journey language, the way it describes anybody that has yet to know Jesus is it says that on this journey, they are lost. And so when we, before we came to Jesus, we were lost. As you think of our one lives, how the Bible describes them on this journey, it says that they are lost. But you know how the Bible does not describe them? It does not say that God loves them any less. These are Jesus' children. These are his lost children, and he loves them just as much as he loves us. 
He died for them as he died for us. He was passionate to see us come home and he's passionate to see them come home. And so how God uses, how God spreads that word is through us. It's through relationship. It's through connection. It's through sometimes words, but a lot of the time living your life as a forgiven Christ follower around them. He uses these relationships and he says, prioritize this because this is important because these are our brothers and sisters and we want them to have the opportunity to come home. Why did Jesus walk this earth in the first place? So the lost can be found. Jesus changed everything and now we can be those reflections. And so as you look at those three areas, a lot of times we would probably say like, we're doing pretty good in at least one of them. Are there any of those areas where you'd say like, yeah, like I think I'm doing really well with this connection. Are there any areas in there where you'd be like, you know what, like this could use some work. And that's not meant to be a discouragement. The more honest we can be about where we're at, the more work God can do. Hey, something to help you this week as you reflect on that is um, we, we kind of jump more into this in the life group study this week. And if you're not in a life group, or even if you're not in a sermon-based life group, I'd love to encourage you to stop by the uh, starting point on your way out and just grab the study just for your own benefit. So, so we want to do relationships well. We want to connect in a brand new way. And so, what, so, what are the, so one of the best ways to do that is to identify what is a key roadblock that keeps us from connecting well. So we want to get practical here. And as I was preparing and praying about this, the Lord led me to the word conflict. Now, just saying that word makes us want to have a party, doesn't it? Doesn't bring up good emotions, does it? And that's why we got to talk about it. So let's talk about this. There in your note sheet, you got a section titled Designing Your Relational Life. And your fill-in is this. Connecting well means approaching conflict differently. Connecting well means approaching conflict differently. In fact, I would add a word in there. Connecting well means approaching conflict radically differently. Here's the big picture of this principle. The way that we view and approach conflict can be a significant roadblock to connecting well. Or the way we view and approach conflict can be one of the, strong, one, one of the most important strengths we have towards connecting well. See, let's dispel a myth. We've been culturally raised to believe that regardless of what the relationship is, that if it's right, it's easy. That if it's right, it's just going to go super, super well. And if we're doing this right, that means we will not encounter conflict. And so we believe things like if I'm being a good friend or if they're being a good friend, we will never have disagreements or conflict. If I'm being a good spouse, that means we will never fight or have conflict. If I'm being a good parent or if I'm being a good son or daughter, we will never have conflict. If I'm being a good worker or employee, it means we will never have conflict. In fact, we even bring that into the church. If my relationship with God is going well, it's because we aren't having conflict. It's a good church as long as we don't have conflict. 
as long as we don't disagree. And the reality is that places a pressure on us like no other so that when conflict happens, we sit there and go, well, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And you're right, but not because we're not supposed to experience conflict, but because this avoidance of conflict is a lie. Scripture tells us so. See, I'll be honest with you guys. There are certain scriptures that I wish weren't true. And one of them is James chapter 1, where it says, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kind. I wish it said if, because then I have an outside chance of avoiding conflict. But it doesn't. It says when. And so as Christ followers, when we look at wanting to connect well, the question we need to ask is, how am I going to now approach conflict in Christ? Because not even Jesus avoided conflict. So what makes me think I have the intelligence and the skill to do so? And if we think about how we've been raised to avoid conflict, that word brings up a lot of bad memories because often when we see conflict, we see it as a knockdown, drag out fight. Often when we think of what's the end game of conflict, it's usually winning, getting what I want, revenge, vindication. Often conflict is very much focused on us and what we want. And the biggest damaging aspect of conflict that the enemy has pulled in our world is that conflict usually, usually motivates us to quit. I'm in conflict with these friends. That's not how it's supposed to be. I'm out. I'm in conflict with my spouse. That's not how it's supposed to be. I'm out. I'm with my kids. I'm out. I'm in conflict with my church. I'm out. I'm in conflict with God because he's not giving me exactly what I want. I'm out. Winning at life is not avoiding conflict. Winning at life so to speak, is learning how to approach conflict through the model of Jesus. Because I said it's a radical change, and so we stop viewing conflict from what am I going to get out of it to viewing it as an opportunity to serve and glorify God. So let me show you what I mean by that. Rather than me giving you some great self-help tools, let's look at a model, how Jesus modeled a conflict resolution situation. There in your, uh, if I open up your Bibles, open up your apps. We're going to go to John chapter 21. Now, we're going to be starting at verse 15. And let me, set up, let me set up some context for you. So this is after Jesus uh, uh, died and he's, re- he's resurrected at this point. And what had happened is Jesus had a significant conflict with the, with the disciple Peter. Peter, at one point in Jesus' life, said, no matter what happens to you, I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. And I honestly believe that Peter meant that when he said it. But then if we fast forward just a little bit, Jesus is being led to die. This is the darkest event in the life of Jesus. And Peter, as he's watching, somebody comes up and goes, hey, you're friends with him, right? You know him. You're connected to Jesus. And Peter denies it. But not just simply, oh, no, 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 that's not me. He denies it so vehemently that we're told in the Bible that he essentially curses everybody out. He calls down curses upon himself. He sticks to the store. I don't know him. I have no relationship with him. And so think about it. Jesus was just abandoned and betrayed by one of his closest friends. 
we could all agree that is significant conflict, right? Now, if I'm just raw and honest about myself, if that was me, my goodness, I'd be mad. If that was me, I'm just being raw, I would want revenge. I would want vindication. How could you do that to me? And what's unique is that Jesus takes a different approach. In fact, even as you look at Many of your Bibles, uh, if you start, as we start at verse 15, many of your Bibles have a name for the section. And the name is not Jesus fires Peter or Jesus punches Peter or Jesus atomizes Peter. It's something along the lines of Jesus restores or reinstates Peter. And so let's read this together. When they had finished eating, now let's stop right there. That might seem like a big deal. But in Jewish culture, to share a meal with someone was to share friendship and a, con- and a relational connection. Peter had wronged him, and yet here is, here is Jesus showing friendship. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love him? Do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. You know that I love you. And let's stop there and again, let's look at the posture of what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't sweeping the conflict under the rug, is he? But what Jesus is doing is rather than sitting there and going, Peter, you are a traitor. I have nothing but disdain for you. How could you possibly do that to me? Which many of us would probably say he was in his right to do. Instead, what does he do? He restores and reaffirms his connection with God. Do you love me? And then he reaffirms his ability to have connection with others. Peter, you hurt, but I'm rooting for you. I want to see what's best of, I want what's best for you. In fact, I've always paraphrased it this way. Peter, did you mess up? Yeah. Peter, are you ready to move on from this? Yeah. Then let's get back to work. And in fact, a couple verses after that, Jesus says, follow me And as we've been talking about, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to become more like him in all of our connections. So Jesus reaffirmed Peter's connection with him. And he says, follow me, stay with me, become more like me. He says, feed my sheep. He's sending them out to make more relational connections. And he says, follow me, be more like me in those relationships. Jesus is modeling a new way of conflict where we are looking to care for the other person. I like how it's put in your note sheet, this quote from the peacemaker. As Paul reminded the Corinthians, conflict also provides an opportunity to serve others. This sounds absurd from a worldly perspective because the world says, look out for number one. But Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Clearly, we are not released from the command to love our neighbors as ourselves, even when that neighbor is hating, cursing, and mistreating us. Instead of reacting harshly or seeking revenge, God calls us to be merciful to those who offend us, just as he is merciful to us. We cannot serve others this way on our own strength. Highlight that. Underline that. We can't do this on our own. 
we must continually breathe in God's grace through the study of his word, prayer, worship, and Christian fellowship. That's, again, the connection with God and then breathe out his love, mercy, forgiveness, and wisdom to others through our words and actions. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend that doing conflict differently, doing it more from God's perspective is easy. I'm not going to pretend that it's always going to go smoothly and well. There's a lot we can't control. We can't control how the other people or the other party are going to respond, but we can make decisions and choices of how we're going to take steps to glorify God no matter what the outcome is. And what's true about that quote that I love is that it can't be done on our own power. It requires the supernatural power that rose Jesus from the dead. That is the only way I'm going to be able to approach conflict differently. But if I'm willing to take those steps to begin to learn, because it's a learn skill and it takes time, how to approach conflict differently, it will change everything. This will change your friendships, your marriages, your parenting, your relationship to the body of the Lord. It will change your relationship with your coworkers because conflict is unavoidable and that's okay. That's part of it. But how we go about it, we don't go about it alone. We now have Jesus. And regardless of how the other people respond, we are giving God the glory. We are taking steps to more of him and we are giving an opportunity for that relationship to be stronger and experience something better. when we start looking at it from Jesus' perspective. And you know why I need this too? Because I'm very aware of my shortcomings. I'm very aware of the fact that I mess up and I hurt people. I I not only want to be a person that's learning to do this, but I need to depend on the people around me to live this as well. So, Let's wrap this all up. There on the back of your note sheet, you've got a section titled Two Final Questions. And the first question is this, which connections are the most important to you? And it's a reflection question. And hear me clearly, I'm not asking you which connections do you desire to be the most important, but which ones are currently your most important? A few weeks ago, Mike, Michael asked the question, what's in your box? And so think of it as what is in your relational box? And this week, I want to encourage you to take that answer to the Lord and have him focus and encourage and lead. The second question is, how will you grow your connections? And for many of us, the answer to that is, I'm going to grow my connection by growing my, my connections by growing my connection with Jesus first. Because sometimes we kind of give into this lie that I can have good relationships without Jesus in any form. And take the example of family. Maybe we can sit there and go, you know what? My family, you know, you know what, like, I, I connect with my family, I see my wife after work, I, I, I connect with my kids, things are going really, really well. But when it comes to God, you know what's happening? Like, I, I, don't, I don't spend time in his word, I don't pray, everything kind of feels like a chore, like, I believe in God, I love God, but that's just not happening. So what's happening there is we are selling our relationships short. Let me illustrate it this way. Last week, it was Valentine's Day, right? The mother of non-holidays with this Hallmark conspiracy. Now, let's say for Valentine's Day, 
I told my wife, hey, you know what, for Valentine's Day, I've got a surprise plan for you. I'm going to take you to a very swanky dinner. You get dressed to the nines. The kids aren't going to be with us. And so as parents, you know, we're going to actually get to be adults for like two hours. It's going to be great. And so she's going to be excited. She's going to be dressed up. So I get her in the car, and I drive her. And I'm like, are you excited? This is going to be so. She's like, yeah. And I take her to Arby's. (laughs) Like, imagine if I take her to Arby's. Now, don't get me wrong, Arby's has a good deal, like $5 for five beef and cheeses. <laughs> and if you're sitting here and you own an Arby's, I'm not trying to disrespect you, but come on. You know, as, what would my wife feel? This, this is it? What would I be feeling? Well, one, physically I'd be hurt because she would have punched me. <laughs> but secondly, what if legitimately in my head, like, this is as good as it gets? What if I came and told you guys that and many of, all of you would probably respond, no, there's more out there. Why well, use that to illustrate our relationships? If you think what you have is good, what God is in the business of doing is taking the good and making it even better. Amen. So don't sell them short by selling your connection with him short. And on that note, what I want to do is I want to invite the worship team to come on out. And as we engage in this time of worship as a church, we're also going to have an opportunity to take communion. Now, communion is an act that's reserved for the body of believers, the, the Christ followers, because of the symbolism that it represents, that Jesus told us to remember his sacrifice, and the bread represents his body, broken on that cross. The drink represents the blood that was shed um, to forgive all of our sins. And so if we want to be a people that go out and, to ha- and we begin uh, exploring our relational connections in a new way, it begins by always strengthening our relationship with God. Now, on that note, let me make a, logistical, a couple of logistical comments about communion. As Tim mentioned the announcement, we are growing. And it is awesome, but we are growing. And so what that might mean is that we might have some traffic jams and we might have some bottlenecks as we take communion. And so I'm going to ask for your patience because that's okay. We are having traffic jams and bottlenecks because that many people want to remember the sacrifice that Jesus has done in their lives. One way that you can help is sometimes you go to the only tables we can see, which are those two, but we have tables all around the room. The best table that may, not have, may have the least amount of traffic jam may actually be right behind you. And so let me encourage you, let's have patience, let's show grace and love as we enjoy this time. The band is going to play instrumentally for a little while. You're going to be free to go admit, immediately if you want to sit and reflect. You're free to do that as well. But let's pray and then we'll take a communion together. Father, Father, as we learn through your word that Relational connection is a high priority, is essential for us living the, a designed life well. I'm grateful that you don't leave us to, to figure this out on our own. I'm grateful that the one who knows how to connect better than anybody else, you, lives within us, is continually teaching us how to do relationship in the good and the bad. Father, I pray that we, as a congregation, we commit to learn from the Master. I pray that all of our relational connections be impacted by the overflow of that connection. As we take communion, Lord, thank you for this reminder of how passionate you are and the lengths you went to to restore that relationship with us. We love you, Jesus. In your son's name, we all said, amen. Jesus, that is our prayer. Father, that's our declaration as individuals, as your church, that we want more of you. 
Father, we want that to overflow into every aspect of our lives, but we just want more of you. We want to experience more of your wisdom, more of your grace, more of your freedom. We want to experience more of your power, Jesus. Let us not be a people that simply sing this on a Sunday morning, but let us be a people that reciprocate that agape love you have for us. Jesus, you love us in our imperfection. You love us even though we rebelled and you restored us. And so eternally, Father, we declare that we want more of you. And so as we go into this final song of worship, Lord, as we receive our tithes and our gifts, as we sing words of Jesus, we want to be closer to you again. We declare that and we commit that our lives will back that up. In your son's name, we all said, amen. You know, about a week and a half ago, maybe two weeks ago now, I was sitting with a group of us on staff here, and I was talking about this message and um, the importance of connections in our lives. And my friend Mike Jones, he brought up an interesting uh, he brought up an interesting story he had read. He pointed me towards a book called Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, and he's a fantastic author. And Outliers starts with this unique story about a city in Pennsylvania called Rosetto. And it was founded in the 18th century by um, Italian immigrants. And what ended up happening as the years went by is that the city started to display some unique health habits, meaning they weren't dying like everybody else was. And so finally in the 40s or the 50s, a couple of psychologists, sociologists, medical doctors, they went to study them. And they were really puzzled at first because they were working hard in quarry mines. They weren't eating well. They were living in the same type of atmospheric environment. So why is it that their rate of mortality is so much lower than the rest of the nation? And they became observing that something that set the city apart was how they connected relationally with one another. And after a lot of observation, a lot of study, they realized that's it. And in fact, this is what they had to say. Living a long life, The conventional wisdom at the time said depended on a great extent of who we were, that is, our genes. It depended on the decision we made, on what we chose to eat, and how how much we chose to exercise, and how we were treated by the medical system. No one was used to thinking about health in terms of community. Another way of saying it, nobody was used to thinking about relational connection as the way to life, except for one person, Jesus. And so as you leave this place today, may you be engaging in those relationships that bring you closer to Jesus and that fill you with the life you've been designed to live. Amen? Amen. Hey, if you'd like to pray with somebody before you leave this place, along that wall to my right are some amazing men and women. They have some badges to identify themselves that would love to pray with you before you leave. So next week, you're going to be here, right? Because we're circling, we're in the home stretch of this series. We're in the final two messages, and so you can't miss it. Michael's going to be back to lead us. We'll see you then.